Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Australia has done it. The Socceroos have qualified for a fifth consecutive Men's World Cup after a penalty shootout win against Peru. And if qualifying for a World Cup via a penalty shootout sounds familiar, we've got the perfect lineup for you today on the Gagan Pod. Socceroos legends Mark Schwarzer and John Aloisi join me, your host Teo Pelizzeri, as we break down the game and take a look at the big picture going on to the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. This is the Gagan Pod. That's right, we have the two best people to discuss Australia winning a sudden death penalty shootout to qualify for a World Cup. Mark Schwarzer, John Aloisi. Gentlemen, Australia did it. Before I get into the questions, before we get into the detail, just your first impressions. John, how has that left you feeling? Oh, I couldn't be any happier. I, I, it's, it's an amazing feeling because... First of all, to make another World Cup, five in a row, um, and what it means to our game. Because there was a lot of, like, since COVID hit and, and our A-League, the crowds, the the people just, you know, putting down our game, putting down Australian football in general. And to, to get to another World Cup just gives us a massive, massive boost here. And uh, it means it means a lot. It means a lot for, you know, the, the sponsorship that comes into the game, uh, the eyeballs on the World Cup uh, here in Australia, people talking about about the game kids wanting to grow up to play the game because they want to play in the world cup so it's just huge for us and uh, i'm just so happy that we we got there we've we found it hard but we've found it hard every qualifier i don't know when people think that it's easy it's never easy it's always hard but uh, there's always going to be the doubters and the critics but um, we got there in the end doesn't matter how we got there yeah look i i thought um I think it's brilliant. Obviously, you know, like like Johnny was saying there, there's not a lot I can add to that really in terms of the impact and the importance of qualification. As we all know, five times in a row is absolutely insane. Like, look, not that, not many many years ago, we were just hoping to qualify for one, let alone backing it up. And we're talking five World Cups in a row, which is 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 just breaking ground, breaking records every time. I think the guys did an amazing job. Sixteen games away from home. Um, I thought today they deserved it, thoroughly deserved it. I thought they were the better team. Yes, we had a scary moment in um, the second part of extra time. But in general, I thought we were the better team today and thoroughly deserved to to win the game. So absolutely monumental effort and the guys deserve all the credit in the world. Absolutely brilliant. Let's get straight to the crux of the matter. Subbing off Matt Ryan, bringing on Andrew Redmayne, not just for the penalty shootout, but for three very nervous minutes of stoppage time at the end of the 120. Mark Schwarzer, all the sportsman's nights, all the anecdotes about how Gus Hiddink wanted to bring on Zelshko Kalach for the shootout in 2005. What was going through your mind when you saw Andrew Redmayne walk up to the fourth official, put on his gloves, and then get subbed onto the field? It actually happened this time. Yeah, I just I felt for Matty. I really did. Look, I mean, 
the, the decision in the end turns out to be the right, well, the right decision. A, it's a right decision because he, he plays his part, makes a save, the vital save that, that, that wins the game for Australia. So Andrew Redmayne did incredibly well coming off the bench cold, coming into that situation, never having played at that level, that magnitude and having a game as important as that. So absolute hats off to him. Absolutely phenomenal. But I did feel for Maddie, I have to say. And, and it certainly, that was the first thing I thought. Um, and I was having the conversation with my son sitting on the sofa watching the game about that moment and how I would have felt. And I can only imagine, and obviously he would have been told before. And the difference is, my understanding is he was told beforehand. I had no idea that that was going to happen to me. But, but um, would you like it being told before? Does that put you off a little bit as well? I, I'm not sure about that one telling a player no, before. The, the, only, the, only thing, the only thing I would add to that is at least you get a bit of time to prepare for it and mentally prepare for it. You, you, as much as you, I would not have been happy either, um, it, it's just, you know, the, the manager makes that decision and you've got to accept it, right? But I think it, it takes any any possibility of it going horribly wrong on the day because people you don't know how people react. Look, we saw it with Chelsea, um, Arizabalaga refusing to come off. I'm not saying that that would have happened. It just eliminates that. Yeah by being told and I think for the player's perspective I think that's the right thing to do and the most respectful thing to do and the player I think the very least would deserve that so so from that aspect I think that's the right thing to have done um, but yeah no going away from it you, you, he's got to be devastated in one in one way because you want to play you want to play every moment you want to have part of it, be part of every moment part of that history Um but that's what a team sport is about sometimes, and sometimes it's out of your hands. I have to give credit to Arnie there because it's a big call. It's a massive call. And if it goes wrong, it's uh, that's the talking point. You know, the talking point's not Australia played well and they're unlucky. The talking point's why did he make that sub? You know, why wouldn't he kept Matty Ryan in goals? He saved penalties before. Um, so it's one of those ones that you have to say, that's what a manager is there to do, is make those big calls and, and go by it. And, and, you know, he... he uh, in the end, he got his rewards, but uh, it's still a massive call. Was that why he was so relieved after the game? Is that why he was <laughs> almost so. like crying? Like, because he just thought, oh my God, I got it right. That decision worked. Imagine the criticism he would have got had it not worked oh. right. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. 100%. That you know what it's like, Johnny. That's part and parcel of the job. You know, you make those big calls, and he made a monumental call that worked out. Now, before we get into the goalkeeping side of what Andrew Redmayne did once he was subbed on, John, I wanted to ask you about the mentality of Australia's takers. And we all love to be body language doctors as they walk up to take. I thought Boyle was going to convert. I was stressing hard for our Mabil. Credit to him for converting that penalty because that one was the red alert for me in terms of the Peruvian goalkeeper trying to get in his head. What was your read on the Australian mindset and also the body language and also the technique of our takers, given that we only had Boyle with the one miss and all our other takers converted? I have to say, Boyle's penalty was good. Yeah, give credit to the keeper there. It was a top save. It was a top save because it was actually quite high. So it wasn't like, you know, that they say, oh, it's a good height for the keeper. He still needs to get across and still be at that length to actually save it. Swartz didn't go into detail about that. But in terms of all the players, yeah, probably Awama Bill was the one that I, I felt a little bit nervous because of the keeper taking so long and wasting time and, the, you know, the thoughts that were being going through his head as he was standing there because he was standing there for a long time so 
um, but he remained calm. He remained cool. All the penalty takers remained calm. Uh, they, they were very cool. I have to say that the, all the penalties were good. They hit them well. They struck them well. Um, and that's not easy in, in a pressure situation like that. Uh, you know, not only, uh, you know, I know Boyle missed, but he struck it well. And, and all the other penalty takers did as well. Jamie McLaren was probably the, that was the pressure moment. You know, because if he misses that, then then it's you know it, it's probably game over because then they they go and take their penalty to win it. But um, he took his penalty with a lot of calmness, didn't touch the ball in normal time, and then he had to step up and take that. And he, he you know it shows the confidence in him. Craig Goodwin as well, because we saw that backfire for England in the Euros final, and it, it has backfired bringing on specialised penalty takers so many times. And you saw him have that big fresh air swing at the ball in midfield in those last couple of minutes that he played before the shootout uh, took place uh, so again is that credit to Arnie is it credit to how the team prepared how much credit goes to Goodwin himself to come in cold you think of Nicholas Anelka in that Champions League final where he said he didn't even want to be subbed on to take a penalty and, and effectively blamed the coaches for bringing him on so how much credit goes to Goodwin how much credit goes to the staff for preparing him to come on with one specific role in mind. Yeah, credit has to go to everyone involved. But I got a bit nervous when I saw Goodwin uh, air swing during the game because he must have known that he was going to take a penalty. He must have been a little bit nervous. And uh, but when you're when you are a little bit nervous like that and you are not sure, the way he struck it was I'm hitting it with power. I don't think he meant to strike it so high in the top of the net, but you're hitting it with power and you go, you know what, if the keeper saves it, it has to be that it's a reaction save. So, um, you know, he, he kept uh, he kept cool in a, in a difficult situation. Whether he would have going to come on if Aziz Beach didn't get uh, his... He's cramped. He probably still would have come on, but uh, Aziz Beach helped him by not being able to run anymore with cramp. Yeah, look, I thought I thought it was massive though. Yeah, look, Goodwin Goodwin's goal was... Was penalty was brilliant. I thought all the penalties were brilliant. I agree with you. I, I thought Martin Boyle's penalty was a brilliant, a brilliant penalty, um, and equally even better um, the save from from Pedro uh, Gayez. I thought it was absolutely a, 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 like a world class save, and I actually was like, wow, okay, if this guy is this good at penalties, we're in trouble here um, because it was a wonderful save. But all the rest of the guys, you think about three of our penalty takers came on, um, and they are all cool and calm and and really good. Really good penalties. Um, I, I agree with Johnny. You know, it, the, the the moment, the the pressure. If anything, I think playing in Qatar with the 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 the, uh, the fans that were there, the vast majority were from Peru. I thought the Peruvians felt the pressure a lot more. I, for, for whatever reason, I just think we dealt with the occasion so much better, and that was why I always felt because the way we played. That going into the penalties, I just felt that little, I felt a sense of confidence that we were going to win it. Swartzy, I think it goes down to preparation. I think that our preparation was so much better than theirs. And, and I mentioned that last game, I was a little bit nervous leading into the UAE game because they're used to the conditions, the surroundings. Um, you know, people say, yeah, but it's an air conditioning stadium. Yeah, but when have uh, Peru ever played in an air conditioning stadium before? Um, when have Peru ever walked out uh, at uh, nine o'clock in the morning and it's 45 degrees outside, you know, when they go for their team walk? Um, so they, they prepared in Spain. 
They played their friendly game against New Zealand in Spain. Whereas Australia played three games in Doha. Australia haven't lost in Qatar. They've never lost in Qatar. So that the preparation, you could see with the way the game was, Peru looked dead from the first minute. They, they, they didn't look like the Peru of what we've seen in the past. They didn't look sharp. Um, whereas Australia looked that that bit fresher, that that sharper, and and they gained confidence with that because they they actually felt that they were better during the game, so that would have given them confidence going into that penalty shootout. I wanted to before we get into maybe other elements of the game, sticking with the penalty shootout, Mark, the wiggle routine from Andrew Redmayne. Talk us through as a goalkeeper how you interpret his approach to the shootout the mental side of it, but also the goalkeeping technique side of it. Tell us what you were thinking on each of those individual penalties. The referee clearly fell into it because he seemed determined to have a conversation with Redmayne before every penalty he faced. If anything, the referee helped Australia's cause by delaying each of the takes, and yet Redmayne didn't get booked, didn't seem to get in trouble, and was allowed to do as he pleased, and of course he saved two of the penalties. So what did you make of it all? Look, I think that uh, the referee played his part throughout the whole game. He allowed so much time wasting to occur. He allowed so many times for the for the game to be slowed down throughout the whole game. It was actually, that I thought was ridiculous. I thought he allowed Peru to just, I mean, they, their goalkeeper must have held the ball for 20, 25, 30 seconds in his hands each time and the referee just allowed it the goal kicks so that that wasn't a surprise to me um Andrew Redmo the, the technique obviously I, I'd actually not seen him uh, do that before and I know I know people have talked about it but to actually see it was interesting and obviously it's a it's, it's a trying to put off the tactic it's trying to deflect um trying to put the player maybe get him a little bit distracted maybe take his mind and concentration off the job at hand to, to lose his focus a little bit the only thing I'd say is what what he obviously for Andrew Redmayne as well. He's done it so many times that at the moment of the penalty being taken, he is set. But the problem is he's he's already he's already in moment he's already in motion, so he has to make almost his mind up before the penalty taken uh, penalty is taken or right at the exact moment. And and that is that is a that is a really tough thing to do. Um, the other thing is at times you saw the penalties. It's very difficult if you don't get the timing right to then push off, to push upward. He pushed off well sideways, long ways, but to get up off the ground, that was a bit more difficult for him, I think. It's just about the momentum, about timing. Look, you do whatever you do and it works. Who am I to criticize him? You know, he's, he's, he's played his part in helping Australia qualify for a World Cup, which is absolutely insane. And you've got to take your hat off to him because he did a fantastic job. It's a little bit like Bruce Grobbler uh, for Liverpool against Roma when the, he had the uh, the jelly legs, the the legs of going, you're nervous and I'm going to put you off, you know, as, you, as you're coming up. Um, you know, mate, that, that's what he was trying to do, of course. He's trying to put the, the penalty taker off. And I have to say, that, you know, that it didn't really put them off. They, they, they struck most penalties quite well. Hill. They they were quite confident in their penalty takers as well. You know the one that hit the post. I think that if it was a little bit inside, Redders did go the right way, but uh, would have he saved? I'm not sure. Um, but the clutch penalty he saved. So you know we have to say that it worked. You've coached Andrew Redmayne, John, uh, in the earlier years of his career. What does it mean to see him now as a veteran, as the third choice keeper? Uh, as a maligned player, I mean, even as recently as the All-Stars game against Barcelona, he had people on his back for how he was unable to handle the Adama Traore shot. What does it mean to see someone that you've worked with and known for a long time go on to basically become an Australian hero? Yeah, top kid, 
top professional. He's uh, one of those ones that um, even when he's been dropped or he's not starting or people are on his back, he doesn't put his head down. He works as hard as ever still. Um, and that's what you need to be uh, as a keeper because you're always going to get criticised as a keeper if you make mistakes. And uh, and Swartzy knows that that uh, it's it's one of those ones you just have to get on with it. And, and he does do that. And coaching that Melbourne Heart, it was funny because uh, I ended up getting a text from my goalkeeper, coach back then Joey Delitzer and he said let's hope that his penalty saves are a lot better than what we had him because he had zero in ten Melbourne Heart slash City um, but then he went to Sydney FC after a few years uh, under John Crawley and started to perfect his you know his penalty saves because you, you remember that he saved uh, uh, penalties against Perth Glory a few years ago in the in the grand final so he's he's done it before and um, and obviously Arnie would have practiced penalties during the week seeing how good he was against the plays with the Socceroos at you know when they're practicing and he would have gone well you know what I've got confidence in him and I'll throw him in but uh, you know credit to and uh, Andrew Redmayne because he's never put his head down he's just kept on working and going and then he deserves the the success and Mark just the the stress the tension of qualifying for a World Cup this way how does it feel that now you'll be the first to have done it rather than the only ones to have done it. We have the two perfect people here to discuss this sort of a moment qualifying for the World Cup. Do you feel as though your legacy, if anything, is actually enhanced by the fact that a little bit of history to an extent has repeated today that the Socceroos have qualified for a World Cup in similar fashion and uh, a group of players who would have been between sort of the age of 10 and 20 when you were uh, making those exploits yourself have now grown up to emulate your own feats? Yeah, look, it's amazing. I, I, I mean, for us, I, I think the only thing, the only, the big difference for us, obviously, is that it was the first time in thirty-two years it was on home soil and it was eighty-three thousand people, right? So that that's the difference. Everything else is the same. And I think for the players, right? You know, look, the players out there would be soaking it all up. They just they wouldn't have had that same sort of atmosphere. But the end result is is as big, and. That's the thing, you know, and, and these guys, you saw, I mean, I saw a lot of the, the footage afterwards. I saw a lot of the interviews afterwards. The guys were obviously over the moon and beside themselves. And it took me back to how we felt and you're lost for words and you can't explain what it means. And um, the, the, these are moments that these guys will never forget, right? And and to be part of history, to be part of, you know, to be part of the, the family, the Socceroos family, you know, even though obviously we're, we're a long time retired now, you still very, feel very much part of that and you feel very excited and you feel very proud of it and you feel very part very proud i think also to have been at the beginning of that legacy that 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 uh, momentum um and we all know how difficult it is we all know how difficult how incredibly difficult the journey journey is how difficult it was prior to joining asia and how much more difficult in some ways it has become since joining asia then throw covid into the mix and the 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 qualifying mix that these guys had to go through, the 16 games away from home, um, the restrictions, a lot of these guys coming, when they did finally get back to Australia, didn't even get to see their family, or they did from distance. So it's it's enormous. And that's also why I think people will say, well, it's five in a row now, we're kind of used to qualifying. But it's all that built-up emotion, I think, coming to the fore now. And these guys will lap it up, will soak it up. And we all know, we all know what it's like when you criticize, when, when things are not going so well, but you stick together, you work hard, and the, when you get the end result that you've all been fighting for for so long, it, it's, 
it becomes all encompassing, all overwhelming, and it's difficult to express yourself uh, for these guys. But they'll certainly uh, enjoy the night, that's for sure, and possibly the next couple of days. Um, as uh, as we heard afterwards, Martin Boyle was talking about in a couple of days when he gets back to his hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those ones that uh, I agree with Swartzy in, in terms of, you know, how it feels after. You know, we had to qualify for 32 years as a nation then when we qualified, but we still felt, even though we are playing Uruguay, who were a top team, had top individuals, we felt that we were good enough because we had players playing at the top of their game in top leagues in Europe. You have to remember that these guys went into this game, and not only this game, the last two games, and everyone's writing them off, saying that they're not good enough as individuals, as a team. They're not. We haven't got players of you know the era gone by, and and so they does it, it might put doubt in their mind as well. They might be thinking, well, well we're actually not good enough. So for them, there must be such a, an amazing feeling because they're going. We just beat Peru, who, you know, finished fifth in South America. And, and I don't care, you know, Peru's probably not a Uruguay or not a, a, a Colombia or not, you know, Argentina or Brazil. But fifth place South American side is going to be good. So for them to win it that way, you could just see in their faces, they were just like, just relieved over the moon, didn't know how to actually uh, deal with the situation. When they're talking, they don't even know how to express themselves because it was, you know, a bit surreal for them. And it will sink in in days to come after they sober up, but uh, amazing feeling for them. We will get into the bigger picture and looking ahead to the World Cup itself later in the discussion. But just to focus back in on what happened on the grass for the 120 minutes, John, you alluded to the preparation and talked about how Australia seemingly got their preparation right compared to Peru. Talk us through your impressions of the 90 minutes of extra time and how you saw the ebb and flow of what was ultimately a nil-all draw. I saw Australia dominate the first 25 minutes. And, and what I mean by dominate, they, they pressed them really well. And they didn't allow Peru any time on the ball. They pressed high. And I think that's one of the reasons why he, he started Mitch Duke up top, because we know his energy. We know what he can bring that way. Um, and, you know, they, they, they put Peru a little bit on the back foot. So then they, what happens with the players, especially the Peruvians, is that they have that perceived pressure all game. They think shit Australia work hard they, 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 they're going to they're going to make it hard for us so they didn't allow them to get into the game there was probably only about a 5-10 minute spell in the first half that Peru started to gain a little bit of territory with the ball and but they didn't create any chances I'm not saying we created clear cut chances but we were the better side I thought Martin Boyle in the first half um, was our most dangerous player going at the, the defenders and uh, you know he got past them a couple of times um, and then in the second half again we, we, we started to uh, gain uh, momentum and, and gain territory. I thought Awamabil made a good impact when he came on. We had the best chance with uh, Hristich. I thought that um, you know that was unlucky. He, he probably didn't connect it the way he would have liked, but he got into a good position. I thought Hristich grew into the game. He didn't start the game that well um, in terms of getting on the ball as much. Moy was. I thought Moy he, he controlled the game. I thought Moyle was the one that really uh, was able to get on the ball a lot, dictate the tempo of the game. Um, and and then, you know, we, we were the better team in the 90 minutes. 
I think Swartzy mentioned that the second half of extra time was the only time that we felt a little bit under pressure. They hit the post and they had a, a, another half chance. But, you know, all in all, our back four was very good. Uh, Kai Rolls was excellent. Um, Aziz Beach was excellent. You know, we, we were questioning if uh, Atkinson, uh, he got a card early on. And that can also play, you know... It, put doubt in your mind but after that he was he was calm he was comfortable Bailey Wright was good so all in all was a good very good performance probably one of our best performances for a long time and I I still think it's because we're physically better than them that's why we're able to do that I think I also think um you know back back four were were very very good I thought though in midfield we completely dominated the game uh for large parts of it I, I thought the work rate of Leckie, Irvine, Boyle was exceptional. Moy, like you said, controlled lots of the game. Hristich was the one player that, yes, he wasn't as good as he was against UAE, but every time he gets the ball, you think something's going to happen. His one-touch football is actually on a different level, I think, to everyone on the, on the football pitch, uh, certainly on the Australian side. Um, there was times in the, later on in the game he probably overplayed that one touch. He should have probably held the ball a little bit more, but I, 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 I still think he's... He's a cut above the rest with Aaron Moy there in, in that side in midfield. But the work rate of the other guys was was exceptional. And I thought that work rate in midfield also, and also obviously Mitchell Duke up front, helped alleviate a lot of pressure off our back four. We, we didn't have the pressure because of the work rate that was put out in front of them. Um, they they nullified the Peruvians a lot. They put them under pressure, like Johnny said. They forced a lot of errors from the Peruvians, which... I had to double take a few times, thinking, "Hang on, what is going on with this team? Like they are way off it. They 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 were very disappointing. If I'm sitting there from a neutral perspective, I'm watching the game, thinking, this is a really poor Peru side. I was blown away by actually how how bad they were. I thought Australia were very good on the day, not our best performance, but I thought they did a really really good job. We talked about it last week. Get the job done. Do what you have to do to win the game. And I thought they did what they had to do. We had a little bit better moments of, of, I think, a little bit, little bit slightly better quality than last week. Even though we scored two goals last week, the only thing is again is that final that final touch. I thought Jackson Irvine got in a really good couple of positions, but that final bit of quality was missing. Um, and but overall, I thought Australia played well, and we mentioned I mentioned it earlier on deserved it, and um, and yeah, full credit to him. Mark, you've touched on it there, though. Peru's approach to the game. In the first half, my mind immediately turned to they are playing with a handbrake on. They are thinking 120 minutes. But as the game went on, and Ricardo Gareca, the cutaways to him, he's getting angrier, outwards to the field, inwards to his bench, his assistants and, and his bench players. Why is it that he was unable to change the game state? And how much credit do we give Australia for the way we approach the game and how much do we criticise Peru, uh, much like we criticise the UAE, for not actually being able to take the initiative and not really until the second half of extra time even significantly threaten the Australian goal? I think there's a combination of things. Johnny touched on it earlier on about preparation, and that's 100% right. Peru underestimated how difficult the conditions are going to be. Yes, in, a, in an air-conditioned stadium, it's different, right? I wish we had that when we were playing. I mentioned it last week as well, <laughs> but we didn't. But it's the training. It's the app. It's the the you know when they when they arrive at the airport when they go to the hotel, it hits you. It hits you like a, a brick wall. The the humidity or, or the heat. Um, so those guys would have been oh my god this is this is far worse than any of us kind of expected it to be. Um, there was a couple obviously I think there's a couple of the guys who are based in the Middle East anyway. But still unless they experience it, I think they got that wrong. 
that timing. Um, I think the players struggled with the with the conditions, with the preparation. They looked leggy. They looked. Um, I also think they watched the UAE game and thought, "We've got this in the bag." I, I think they underestimated us. I think they thought they were going to win the game comfortably. And you're right. The manager started off being frustrated. But after about 20 minutes, he, he was angry. And every time he was biting, he was getting worse and worse and throwing his hands up in the air, couldn't explain, couldn't understand why they were so far off the pace. And I think there's that, that combination, preparation and underestimating us or, or, or going in there complacent, with complacency, thinking we're going to win this game easily. Yeah, they haven't qualified back-to-back World Cups for a long time. And so, you know, the pressure would have been there for them. And, and you know, we, t- we spoke about preparation at length, but also we can't underestimate the pressure that they would have felt, you know, that uh, oh, we should be beating Australia. You know, I've been uh, hearing, and it was on Optus Sport, you know, about their, all the journos, you know, that we're going to beat Australia easy and, uh, you know, Australia kangaroos and they're jumping around, you know, making fun of us. And, and and, and it, it brought me back to, you know, a Uruguay that, you know, said divine right to qualify. And, and you go, you know what? It's a dangerous game they're playing. It's a dangerous game. It doesn't matter who you're playing against, who you're up against. You underestimate them. Um, you don't analyse them enough. Uh, you don't respect them enough. They, they can come and hurt you. And uh, and that, that, that would have played a bit of a part in that because they would have gone after 25 minutes and said, this is not easy. We're, we're, we're in for a real fight here. And once you, you don't start well, it's hard to change gear. You know, the, your legs still feel heavy. You need that, a moment that makes you get energy from somewhere. Now, that moment never came from it. You know, usually it's a goal, of course. It gives you a bit of energy and, and you get a lift. It, you know, it might be a tackle. It might be a little bit of a scuffle. They didn't even have that. They didn't have a scuffle at all during the game to give them something, to give them a lift. You know, they had the crowd behind them, but even the crowd started to quieten a little bit, thinking they start to get nervous about the whole situation. So, you know, they, they didn't prepare right for this game and they got what they deserved. And we do like seeing them crying afterwards when they underestimate this. Yeah. And they put us down and think they're going to win easily. I mean, that, that does stick to mind about Uruguay, absolutely. And that's exactly what I felt as well, that they underestimated us. They, they had this sense of party already beforehand, thinking, right, we've got this in the bag. We're just going to have to turn up and, and we'll win this game. And there's nothing better than shoving it back in their face. One other incident in the game I wanted to ask about, John, uh, and he left the game with cramp in order for Goodwin to come on. Aziz Bayic, another player that you've coached, uh, he had that mazy run. He's nearly scored one of the iconic goals, and it would have been quite the moment for the boy from Brody, Meadow Park Eagles, his junior club in the northern suburbs. But as another player that you've coached, he's been at times a maligned A-League player. He's been at times a maligned Socceroo. And he was one of the first people that uh, Channel 10 interviewed after the game. And you could just hear him talk about the journey. He mentioned the 1,008-day qualifying campaign. He seems like someone who was really switched on and geared in to every step of the way. And you could just hear how proud and how happy he was to have been a part of it and to have answered, I think, a lot of his critics in the last couple of games with how he has played. What was it like, again, for you to, to watch someone that you've played a big role in the development of go on and, and perform on the biggest stage like that? It was great to see Aziz because, you know, Aziz, if you remember back in the grand final uh, when Melbourne Victory played uh, Sydney FC, he missed a, a, an open goal. 
And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people saying that this kid can't make it, he's not good enough. And then he, he comes to Melbourne Heart and from left wing, uh, he transferred, well, we transitioned him to left fullback. And of course, then you need to work on his game and you need to make sure that his defensive side improves. Um, you know, he's great going forward. And uh, But you have to give uh, all the credit to Aziz because he's such a hard worker. He, he's he's one of those guys that he steps foot onto the, the nicest guy off the pitch but then when he sets foot onto the pitch he's got that that winning mentality he'll do what it takes to win and I thought he was excellent really really good you know he was calm um, with the ball he made good decisions on the ball um, and, and also defensively which can at times he get he can get caught out um, but I thought he was he was very good uh, also defensively so to see him uh, and uh, you know I'm so happy because I, I know him really well I haven't coached him and he's, he's a great kid and also his family. I know how much it would mean to his family, but he's forged a great career. You know, he's gone to Turkey and he's stuck it out and played at the highest level in Turkey and done really well. And, and now another World Cup for him. So it was uh, it was great to see him do so well. And, you know, and also the way he spoke after the game, he was, um, you know, that, that just shows how humble he is as a person as well. And Mark, just last one for me on the actual game itself before we get into big picture stuff. Bailey Wright hadn't played for the Socceroos since 2019. Comes in for the friendly against Jordan and parlays that into the two qualifiers. He's played every minute of all of them. He, playing in a part of the world, Sunderland, uh, of course, a, a part of the world that you would know well from your time in England, having played for a rival in Middlesbrough. But I guess, what does it say about his journey that he's bided his time? And again, you could hear what it meant to him. He was actually one of the first in the post-match interviews to say, we've proved the doubters wrong and we've uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So clearly he is one that, that thrives off the bulletin board material. But what did it mean to see him come in, stay composed, lead a junior partner in Kai roles and hold that back line together? No, he did very well. Look, would he have played had Trent Sainsbury been fit? Maybe might have gone with the more experience. Would Kai Rolls played? You know, who knows? But look, that's what it's about. You you have to take your opportunities when they come about. And he did that. Um, look, he did also. He does also play for the lesser team in the Northeast, right? So, <laughs> and he's used to the criticism. He's used to all that. You know, they weren't expected to win the playoff either this year because their playoff record is horrendous. They did that. So he's had that experience right he knows what it's like when all the doubters are out and again he proved it and look I think he did really well I really do look is he you know is he a Cannavaro no he's not of course not but did he do a really good job in these games I think he did a really good job he look he's not the quickest but I still thought his reading of the game was really good I thought he did a really good job today in um, better than I think I think he did better than he did last week I thought the team overall was better than last week Um, but he had a cool head I like him on the ball as well um, he's got something about him with the ball at the feet as well. Um, so, again, I think I think every player in the team you can go through and talk about how well they dealt with the pressure, how well they dealt with the, 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 the situation against the opponent and how they proved all the critics wrong. And, and he's certainly right up there again with, with every one of them. You know, every one of those guys deserves an enormous amount of credit um, because they did a tremendous job. And what I love also is that the majority of those players that were in the starting 11 have played in the A-League. You know, the A-League is uh, gets criticised a lot, you know, that the level of the A-League isn't, a, a, you know, as high as certain leagues in Europe. We know it's not the Premier League, but, you know, for these players that, that started off a lot here, like Aaron Moy, uh, his Bayich, you know, you can go through quite a number of them and, uh, and being able to play at that level and deal situations like they had to deal with 
deal with players that have played at a high level throughout Europe and the world, you know, it's uh, it's also, you know, a big plus for the A-League. But you know what? That That's what the A-League needs to be, right? So the A-League has to be that platform to to... To, to to allow these guys to come in, have that first taste of professional football, played a really good played a good level, then those who are good enough need to come to Europe. Don't go to Asia, go to Europe. And they've got to stick it out. And that's what we need more of. And Bailey Wright's certainly one of those ones is seen as a bit of a journeyman. But look, now he's up into the championship. He's one level back off the Premier League. You know, Harry Sutter has been, been, been. Obviously, he'd probably be in the Premier League already had he not uh, got injured. We need these guys to keep pushing. As Bayic, you mentioned him, a guy that struggled for time in Turkey, bit of a journeyman as well. Went to PSV, struggled for game time, but never gave up. The easy, when I say gave up, he never took the. I say, I say it with the the most respect is the easier option of coming back and playing the A League because it's back home. It's where your family is. It's where everything else is. What Johnny and I didn't have was the well, we certainly net. didn't, we didn't feel have the safety like safety net to come back. No, we felt like we didn't. Right, the, the so the old you know the old NSL was there, but we felt the drop back in terms of going back to something professional was so great that we never wanted to do that, and it was like no, 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 that's just not an option. We have to make it work. We need to get that mentality back in these guys that they they do have to get go over with the mentality of it. I need it to work. I'm going to make it work and not use the safety net. Well, Lecky's a prime example. You know, he's he's gone over yep. and uh, he started in the A-League with Adelaide United and then uh, gone over to Europe for a number of years, stuck it out, played at a top level and, and, and you know, that experience helps him. And let's hope that Atkinson and, and now Kyle Rolls signing in Scotland, you know, these are good stepping stones for these players because Absolutely. they'll end up playing, you know, week in, week out in front of big crowds, in front of, you know, with important games and, and that's going to help them. That's, and you're right, that's what the A-League's there for. Yes, we want it to be a top league, but we also want to help younger players get to a level then go to Europe, uh, play, have a career in Europe, play for Australia, play for our national team. The more players that we can produce like that, like Jean Rowe, like, um, you know, Riley McGree, you know, who they didn't play a part in these games, but they will play a part at the World Cup. They will, they'll, they'll get their opportunity. And, uh, you know, they ended up having their career kick-started here in Australia. That, uh, so that's, uh, it's, it's a positive. It's a massive positive, And that's what the, the message should be back here with the A-League. And on that point, we will turn our focus to the World Cup itself and also talk about some of the big picture issues. You're listening to the Optusport Gegenpod. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, we continue with the discussion and let's take a look at the tournament proper. Unlike previous World Cups, we know what group we're going into. Australia, just like 2018, will start with France. Then it will be Tunisia in game two, 
and Denmark in Game 3. Two of the same three opponents as previous tournaments. Whenever I see Tunisia, I can't help but think of the 2005 Confederations Cup and what a watershed moment that was uh, in terms of uh, Farina leaving and Gus Hiddink being brought in, but we'll leave that aside. Gentlemen, what, what tickles you about the group? What are you looking forward to the most? Is it primarily about Australia or is it also the prospect that the curse of the holders and France not being in particularly good form means that maybe we can just dare to dream that we could be the nation that springs that big World Cup surprise and captures the world's attention? It's a long way off, Taylor, isn't it? <laughs> Let, let's, let's, just, let's just enjoy the moment. Let's enjoy the fact that we've qualified. And but it's the closest that a World of... Cup's been since qualification, isn't it? It's, it's only six months away, not even five months that, away. That, so that, that's it's, right. It's exciting, it, isn't it, when you think about it, it. it? It's monumental. And yes, France at the moment, haven't, they lost obviously overnight. They're not being great necessarily, but geez, they're, they're France, right? And come the World Cup, they'll be there or thereabouts again. Denmark, I think, are a better side than they were in 2018. You know, so we're in a we're actually in a more difficult group. Um, one would argue, uh, the, is this current group of players as good as the the squad of players that went in 2018? Well, only time will time will tell. Tunisia, look, are they going to be the Peru of 2018? Right. So it's World Cups are World Cups. There's no easy game, and we are in one hell of a group. And it's about preparation now and trying to get the best out of these guys making sure these guys are fit making sure sure people like Aaron Moy get enough game time and is fit for the World Cup you know Aiden Ristich hopefully he establishes himself as a regular at Eintracht Frankfurt or whether he stays whether he goes elsewhere who knows but he continues his development these guys Carl Rose goes up to another level you know there's a couple other players on the fringes that I'm surprised weren't involved now Cammy Devlin is another one at Hearts who I think has been absolutely exceptional for them this season there are some I'm, I'm sure there'll be some some late runners into that squad right so we just need our guys playing playing regularly playing at the highest possible level doing as well as they possibly can um, because it's going to be monumental effort against France and Denmark uh, in particular do you remember, that I saw a doco, Didier Deschamps, uh, during the World Cup. After the Australian game, he started to get out all the stats and, and showing Pogba and, and that how how much Australia ran and how they ran so much more than uh, than France. And that's why they, they made it a difficult game. We're going to have to be fit. We're going to have to play players that are at the top of their game, like you said. Uh, we, we're going to have to because our quality, of course, against France, against Denmark, is uh, is a lot less. So we're going to have to be very well organised, hard to beat, very hard to beat. We've got nothing to lose. You know, no one's expecting us to get any points from those games. Um, but you know, you can cause upsets, and and it's happened in the past. Uh, you know, against the. Uh, you know the, the teams that are expected to win so we just have to you know enjoy embrace the the, the moment embrace that you go on to another world cup and uh, and go and you know nothing to lose attitude and uh, and so if they can do that you never know we could pull off an upset the tunisia game even though people think it's going to be easy never easy against you know top african side so our group is a tough group very tough let's not forget we haven't won a world cup game in the last two world cups yeah. So we, we need to get back to winning games. So, um, albeit you know, 2014 was a transition period. It was preparation for the for the Asian Cup in 2015. It was a completely new squad of player, a lot of new players in it. 2018 was 
it was what it was. Ange left, and then we had a new manager who was in just for that World Cup. So, but we've got to get back to winning ways. We've got to we've got to be a country now that goes to the World Cups, World Cup after World Cup, like we've been doing. But also now, not just just for the sake of going. It's not just to get the financial rewards. It's not just to say that yeah, we're in another World Cup. We need to start looking beyond that and becoming more competitive again and get back to winning games. Just on selection, and we don't need to go deep into it, but Mark, you mentioned late runners. There are always players who play a vital role in qualifying. You think of Tony Vidmar in 2005 that don't get to go to the tournament proper. Uh, last week on the Gegen Pod, you compared Marco Tilio to Daniel Arzani and sort of how Arzani made the late run to become the flavour of the month just in time for 2018. Uh, as you mentioned, John, no Riley McGree or Jean Rowe in these qualifiers, but the World Cup falling mid-season in the European season is a really interesting twist that could make selection really different in terms of who's in form and who is at the top of their game, rather than coming to the end of a European season burnt out, could it actually be advantageous to Australia that the World Cup is falling where it is? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think that it's it, uh, also playing in uh, Qatar is is an advantage for us because we, we, we've played there a number of times. You heard Aziz Bates say this is like a second home for us. Um, you know, we haven't lost here. And, and they'll be using that. They definitely will be using that, you know, coming into these World Cup games because, you know, it, it's never easy for a European side to do well outside of Europe. You know, I, I can't remember, a, you know, a, a team winning other than Spain outside of Europe. And so that's always, you know, I think, well, actually, Germany won sports. I didn't want to bring them up, but uh, they did well, win. now that you mentioned it, I mean, they did win in 2018 and also, uh, sorry, 2018, 2014. Yeah. Um, but they also got to the final in Japan, Korea, didn't they? 20, two, yeah, 2002. Yeah. They didn't win it, but they got to yeah. the final. It's so. never easy, yeah. though, for a European side. So, yeah. look, I, I still think that, um, you know, we have to try and... And use whatever we can to, to give that players the confidence and the belief that they can go and, and get results and, and get wins. Um, but it, it will be diff- different to, to select a side, you know, it, depending on how quick a, a player starts the season, how well he's going at the start of the season. Um, a little bit difficult for A-League players because they would have just started the season. You know, we, we, we start in October and then all of a sudden you're having to go away with the national team in November. So um, the European players will be better placed because they start their season a bit earlier. The only thing I would say as well to that is, yes, it's better that it's in November, but it's also better for everyone else. <laughs> They're not as fatigued. So yeah, and, and the only other thing I would say is for those late those sort of late runners, you know, the dark horses, the guys that maybe were overlooked for these games, if they haven't played, like if they didn't play well last season or just were okay and not really on the radar, you've got to have to put in a, a good five months and then really play well for to get the attention. So as opposed to having a full season and doing really well and it's very difficult for the manager to overlook you, They've got to really do something special in a very short period, so in, a, in a very shortened period of time. So, for someone who who who's maybe been on the fringes or even an unknown, it's going to be tough uh, to get into to the reckoning of the squad. But it's a challenge, and and for any player that has you know that, that's over Aussie Aussie player that's playing anywhere in the world, they 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 want to hit form at the right time, and and everyone wants to give themselves the best opportunity to to be part of that squad and be on the plane to Qatar. Somehow, I just think that our record of never losing Qatar will possibly be broken in November. Um, however, let's hope it doesn't get broken too often. Yeah. And the other one is Harry Souter. The first game of our World Cup group will be 53 weeks, one year and one week. 
after his ACL tear. So he's another one that's in a race against time. It was good to see him in the tunnel and then watching from the stands. And Mark, you mentioned that he probably would have been sold to an EPL club by now had he not suffered that injury. But he's in a real race against time, isn't he? Because it's especially for someone so tall. I mean, there are some players who are machines that can come back from an ACL in nine months and not miss a beat. And there are, there are other players where a year might even be pushing it to come back. Yeah, it might be. Look, I don't know how he's going with his with his rehab and and, and uh, recovery. We did see him on the pitch after the game, so obviously it must be you know not too bad. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is a race against time, and and there is a, there's a tendency to really rush it now because Australia has qualified, and now the clock is well and truly ticking. Now that we've qualified, um, so yeah, for him, there's an excitement, there's that joy, but there's also well, okay, right now I've got to do whatever I can. I mean, even though he wouldn't, he would have been doing that anyway. But it's it just gives that little bit of extra pressure, I think, and a little bit of extra incentive if you needed it to get back. Um, Look, let's hope he's fit. Let's let's hope he. The, the the key of it is, and it's like any major tournament, is having your best players available. And for Australia, we need, we desperately need our best players to be available and fit because we are a bit thin with the quality. Yeah, and uh, another thing that he does bring, and uh, we're normally strong at set pieces. We didn't look too dangerous, you know, in the last couple of games uh, off of that direct, you know, corner or or wide free kick. And uh, and what he does, he brings, you know, a presence in there. Um, let, let's hope he's fit. It's difficult. We don't know. Everyone recovers differently from uh, certain injuries, and and we know that he's a big guy. So you know, will he take a little bit longer? Some players take a, a virtually a year, even though they're back. They take a year to hit the form again that they were in before that um you know maybe a defender can be a little bit easier but uh yeah you want your best players there and he's definitely one of our best defenders all right let's talk about graham arnold is it as simple as this is a five-month victory lap and the coup de gras is the world cup do we see a different arnie as a result of perhaps some of his decisions and methods being vindicated where do you think we go from here with the coach look i think you know, for him, it's a, obviously an enormous men- a sense of relief, right? So it, it's not being that manager that fails to qualify. You know, it's the manager that's continued it. Um, uh, you know, and, and obviously, I thought I thought sort of early, midway through the qualifying, also at the beginning of the qualifiers, I thought he did incredibly well, winning those 12 games. People talk about were the cracks just being covered over and all that. Cracks don't get covered over you in twelve games in a row, right? And and it's a record in one campaign, right? A world record. So that and I said at the time was enormous, enormous accomplishment. Doesn't matter who it's against, but the conditions they played in all the time, certainly when they played in Q8, were extreme, right? So they are very good results. Obviously, they derailed, right? And they got themselves in a situation, and it was a disaster. It, let's not not beat around the bush. That it became a disaster. But disaster, the ultimate disaster was averted because they qualified. Because at the end of the day, we talked about it. Everything else is almost forgotten so long as you qualify. And they've qualified and that's the end result and that's all that matters. Now it's kind of a clean slate, right? So now it's about going to the World Cup and seeing what we can do on the world stage and trying to improve upon our recent results. They're going to go there with very little expectation because of who, who you know, who's in the group. But... I think they just they can only really win in this situation because nobody's going to give them a chance and the you know the, the, the critics will always be there we always know that some will jump on board for a little bit they'll get excited about the qualification and they'll make out as if it's amazing and everything else but the minute 
things turn and the minute they don't like what they see or you know the results might not be there the, even the friendlies leading up to it they'll be out with the daggers right so that's just a given so I think he's just gonna you know Arnie will have to like he's done very very well is soak up all the all the attention that's gonna happen all the criticism and just keep his head down and get on with the job at hand and hopefully like we said before hopefully we'll have his best players fit his best players available and they're just going to have to work their socks off. They're going to have to be fit. They're going to have to be like we were fit when we went to 2006 World Cup because we were insanely fit. And that's what they're going to be at a bare minimum. They're going to have to be incredibly fit. Yep, I agree. They have to be fit. If they want any chance of actually even competing, let alone winning, they have to be fitter than the opposition. And uh, and we, we can. We can be. I think that with our sports science, uh, we're ahead of the game a lot of the time. So we spoke about our preparation for this game. Uh, we were ahead of, of Peru. So that, that will hold us in good stead. Um, but also, look, with Arnie, as a coach, you, you know there's going to be criticism there. And uh, and you're right, we started the qualifications well, then it derailed. Um, and, and a lot of the criticism... Uh, came about because not just because of the results i think it's because the way that arnie was like speaking before that you know you know uh, even come the asian cup you know we we expect to win you know that's very un-australian in terms of we we, we're pretty humble as, as a nation we don't like to big note ourselves too much and I noticed that Arnie was completely different these two games. I, I noticed that Arnie was a lot calmer. He didn't uh, carry on. That you know, he, he he actually brought out the 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 Aussie spirit again. You know, in saying that yeah, we're underdogs, no problem, but we'll show everyone what we're capable of doing. This is where we're at our best, and I think he needs to do that. You know, because he needs to he needs to give the, the players that calmness, not not add that pressure. Because I I feel that the big you know during the, the world cup qualifying campaign sometimes he adds a little bit of pressure to the players well we expect to win it's it's not as simple as that you 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 go in there you still have to respect you know who you're playing against respect the environment that you're going to because you know we know they're tough places to go to um and i found that in these last two games he did that let's not talk about tactics because arnie's a good coach no one's ever questioned that if he's a good coach or not, or there might be people out there, but I've never questioned that. I've always uh, thought that, you know, along with Ange, they're, they're, they've been, you know, pioneers uh, for us as coaches because the way that they've gone about their their coaching careers, that what they've been able to achieve in their coaching careers. So it's it's great for him. It's also great for Australian coaches that he qualified. Um, but, you know, Arnie will go into this World Cup not saying we're expected to win. He'll go in there. We're underdogs uh, and and we'll thrive on that. So I think that will suit us better. Is there a danger that history may be rewritten and our qualification will be interpreted as a blueprint for how to qualify as opposed to perhaps the ultimate cautionary tale on how we almost didn't qualify? But you know what? No. You know what? There, is, there will possibly be an element of that. But I think you've got to put in perspective of where we are, right? So so where we are in terms of personnel, injuries, type of quality of players, what generation of players we've got, where players are playing. And, and you know, there's certainly questions asked about where are our next generation of players coming from? Are we going to be able to get back to what people have talked about, the golden generation, that level of, of players playing as players in the top leagues? You know, so at that time, we probably had what, 10, 12 players playing at the very top leagues around Europe. 
we you know that that's kind of like that's been our ultimate right so of course you 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 aim for that that level and the the questions always will be okay so how do we get to that why have we fallen off so badly so to speak but when you look at qualifying for the world cup that's one objective but the other objective is then to be competitive and that's the next stage we need to get back to being competitive because at the moment certainly in the last two world cups we weren't competitive enough and that's why i think people will also question where we are at the moment you know i i heard i read something yesterday about the qualifying path um that we've had over since since 2005 and that you know the dramatic circumstances of the way in which we qualified in 2005 and then we talked about they talked about joining asia and 2010 was an easy route for us and that riled me up because and i said it i remember saying it at the time to everyone we're, we're gonna no matter what we do we're gonna get criticized people are gonna underestimate the accomplishment and actually that 2010 campaign was arguably tougher than previously because we actually played at a certain level the whole way through and we made it look easy the opposition was still pretty decent we were good and we played in some really extreme conditions but we made it look easy by the performance and the, and the way we played as a team and we way we rounded out results the way we won games we actually were very very good at winning games we knew how to win games we knew how to play games out finish games off and we knew how to defend and work really hard and we had we only considered one goal in that whole qualifying campaign so the perception is it's easy but then they go well okay then 2014 was a struggle we only qualified in the last game well then fast forward two world cup campaigns and we had to qualify through the playoffs again so i think most people would take qualifying on the last on the last uh, qualifying game so as in finishing in the top two and then progressing automatically then going through the playoff system again Maybe maybe the money people will disagree with me. Maybe money people at FFA will actually be happier with playing these playoff games. Nah, Who knows? I don't think that anyone would be happier playing these playoff games. There's too much riding on it. But what I will say is, like, you know, people questioning Arnie and questioning, you know, the, is you know, is this the blueprint or, or whatever else? It, it goes much deeper in that. And these are discussions that we still need to have as a as a footballing nation. You know, we we still need to get better. We still need to produce the players that we had back then that made it look easy to qualify in 2010. Um, you know, it, it's still we, we still got a long way to go. I, I don't think this is all about the head coach. This is more about us developing players that can play at that level in Europe that we have in the past. And so this this discussion should still happen, even though we're qualified. It just makes it easier for us to discuss this and and go into detail and and why we're not being able to produce the players of you know past eras but i still think that you know we're not as bad as what people think in terms of producing players so our under 23 side now is in the semi-final of the asian cup um and and so that that's another big step they got saudi arabia in the semi-final a difficult game but that's that's again that's that's a a step forward because we haven't really been doing well at that age group uh, for a long period of time as well. So now that we're qualified for another World Cup, we've still got young players coming through. We've mentioned Riley McGree, Jean Rowe, Atkinson, Kai Rolls, um, you know, Hristic uh, is still only 25. You know, we reached our peak in that 2005 era. A lot of us were 29, 30 years old. So, you know, we we still got players. We probably haven't got as many players, but we're not as bad. We, we also have to look at why it's happened. I still 
still think the A-League starting back 17 years ago, it, 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 uh, it created a gap there because we didn't have academies, we didn't have uh, junior setups within those clubs. Now we, we're starting to see, you know, the, the players that are coming through, like the Western Sydney Wanderers, the Sydney FCs, you know, we, we start to see these players coming through. Cam Devlin's a prime example from uh, Wanderers, then he went on to Sydney FC and then uh, Wellington, then over to Europe. So, you know, it, it will happen. It, we're not as bad, but we still need to discuss where we're trying to head. Like Johnny's saying, so you don't just have those discussions when you fail. You you have to have those discussions all the time. So even back in 2005 when we qualified with the golden generation, as everyone calls it, those discussions needed to be then, needed to be ongoing because you don't start to worry about where it, where it's all going wrong once it's gone wrong. You need to be ahead of the game every time. And I think that's where we failed a little bit. We weren't ahead of the game. We started to look too we started to look into it too late and and that's the problem you then you end up playing catch up all the time so it's a learning curve right so it's it's lessons that need to be learned that you doesn't matter how well you do how successful you are what type of results you have who you beat how well the national team is doing you've got to continuously strive to be better and you've got to continuously look at the next one coming through and how do you keep producing this level where do you keep investing um and 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 try and not just emulate what the teams have done in the past. You've got to better what they've done. Don't just go 2006 World Cup was the, the benchmark. You've got to go, no, no, no. It's got to be higher than that. And we've got to keep striving for it. One more on the style of football. Five months, short turnaround for the World Cup. A tough group, as you've mentioned. And you both mentioned that we'll need to be fit and we will need to outrun our opponents and need to work hard. Can we have any higher footballing ideals? Or is this World Cup an example of the need for a bit of pragmatism, due to the disparity in both perceived and real ability of the sides? No, we can have higher ideas. We're saying that because when when you're fitter, you can play. You can. It's easier to play because it's easier to move off the ball. It's easier to want the ball. It's easier to make better decisions on the ball. You saw today that we 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 uh, dominated at times in possession. It's you know and we were still the, the 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 more dangerous team I thought going forward and you know we remained calm in our build up. We didn't panic and and you know we we played out in certain situations, other situations we didn't. So it doesn't mean that we need to just drop off and be pragmatic and and just hope that we're going to get a result. No, we still need to play because we've got players that can play. You you don't want Aaron Moy defending for 90 odd minutes of the game because that's not his strength. His strength is getting on the ball. Hristich's strength is getting on the ball. Um, so we still have to actually want to play our football and that doesn't mean that we have to defend the whole time. We, we have to also be very well organised defensively, yes, but on the ball we still have to be brave and still have to want to play our football because that's the best way to win football games. I agree. Yeah, look, when you look at today's uh, performance against Peru, I think that the stat that I've just seen is 47% we had possession of the ball, Peru 53. And I think that swayed more into the latter stages of of, of extra time. I think when you, you took the 90 minutes, I think it was around 50-50, right? And we were talking about last week, we, we didn't think we'd have as much possession of the ball. We thought Peru would have more possession. They would dictate play more. But a lot of that is to do with, we mentioned earlier on about Peru's preparation, but also our preparation and the sports science department and the work that they've put in. Um, I, I mean, look, I'm still, you know, we've been in that environment. I'm still, I'm still amazed at how well and how fit Aramoy was. 
having considered he's played so little football. So that is credit, firstly, obviously the player, the dedication, the professionalism of Aaron Moy, but also the sports science department who have worked tirelessly to make sure he's at that level. So that's, that, is, that is certainly a strength that we have. We have that uh, ability. We have the knowledge. We have the, the, the expertise, the level of expertise and the you know, world-class sports science department, and you've got to utilize it. And then there's those individual qualities that we've got, Aaron Moy, Hristich, they're going to add that extra bit of quality to the game. So that is something that we need, we need to, to exploit. So it's not just about going there and trying to be fit and, 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 and that's it, and we're going to chase the whole game. No, but there are times where we are going to be chasing the game. There are going to be times where we're going to be seeing back. We're going to have to be working really, really hard. But the moments we, we have that opportunity, when we do get the ball, you need to be in a physical shape to actually do something with the ball after you've run so much to chase it down and win it. So my last question for you, gentlemen, is the ultimate big picture, which is what this is going to do on the ground, at the, at the suburban field level, at the mini-roos grassroots level for the game in Australia. We've got the Men's World Cup in November. Then we host a Women's World Cup in July. This is going to be the biggest eight months, arguably, that football has ever seen. The men have held up their end of the bargain. They're going to parlay a heap of momentum into the Women's World Cup I know the game against Tunisia is going to be a 9pm kickoff on a Saturday night. So again, perfect primetime opportunity, even though it's happening in Qatar and we've been getting up at 4am for these qualifiers. The way the tournament works out does a huge favour for us in terms of putting the Socceroos in a national spotlight. I know the Football Australia, they're actually recruiting staff to build a new rego platform, such as their anticipation of how many more players are going to want to sign up to play football. And they were doing that purely off the back of the Women's World Cup, never mind the men's. So what effect do you think this morning is going to have big picture, participation, and for the game broadly in this country? It helps. Don't, don't think that, that, that you know, we don't have to work even harder now to, to grow the game and to get things right. Because you know, I can only talk about you know, the, the A-League level. and The, the level was good in terms of uh, the way that the game was being played and, and the excitement of the games or whatever. But we didn't have crowds at the game. The crowds were poor. The, you know, the, 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 the whole uh, you know, excitement about the game in this country w- wasn't there. So this will help, yes, because we're building towards a World Cup. Um, but we have to make sure that we promote it. We, we get the youngsters interested. We get the youngsters interested in the local game. Um, you know, a, a big thing that, that, that I've still got a gripe with, you know, we, we, we shoot ourselves in the foot so often and, 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 and it, it actually really upsets me. The grand final that uh, we had the other week, all the NPL games were still on, like around the country, not only in Victoria, but around the country. Why do we do this? You know, do we want to do we want to help the game uh, progress and and uh, you know because the, we're so divided. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Because we're so divided. A- exactly, and and this is why. Yes, this is a big help, but we can't be divided like we are. <laughs> it, it's it's not going to work. We're never going to get ahead if we're still divided like we are. We had this discussion a few years ago on Optus Sport with the uh, you know the players that uh, from the two thousand and six World Cup side, and and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed, so we we still have to we have to do something about that. We have to become uh, one. Um, we, we're already having issues that you know the uh, the other codes are, are more dominant in terms of the the you know the media out there. So why would we fight each other? We we can't be fighting each other. We have to become one, and hopefully with this 
and the Women's World Cup will start to end up being strong again in terms of being one. I say again, I don't think we've actually been one. Swartzy, you might no. have something to say about that. No, I agree. I, I agree. I don't think we've. I don't think we've ever been. I don't think we've ever been united. Um, I think. I think we've always been a divided sport. Um, we 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 eat each other up internally um, across the country. We we don't unite enough. We don't work together enough. Um, the the A League Grand Final should be the pinnacle of all club football in Australia. Uh, the FA the you know the FA Cup Final should be the pinnacle of cup competitions in the country. No one should be playing on that day. You know that that should be put or it should be put at a time where everybody can sit down and watch it. Everybody can go to it if they can. You know these are the little things, but they're big things. Um, you know we, we we've got to start from a very young age to to continuously. You know football. Football is is such an incredible sport that just because and and the thing is because it's such a great sport it naturally drags people in it naturally sucks people in the 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 thing that we're not good at is is retaining them maintaining that interest and carrying that interest on to our domestic league to the A league to then following on and supporting the national team and I mean I think there's far more people probably supporting teams abroad than they are supporting teams locally in Australia and even the, the national team. I mean, we, we have enormous amount of support for the national team um, when it comes to World Cups, when it comes to qualifications, but then also throughout the campaigns, but we still don't have the levels consistently as we should have. Um, when, I, when, when you compare of how many people actually love the game of football in Australia. Um, look, when, when Liverpool come to Australia and there's you know 100,000 people buy tickets within a couple of hours, and they could probably sell it three or four times, five times, you know. There there are people there who love football. But we just we haven't tapped we haven't tapped into them enough. We haven't been able to bring them into the Australian game, to bring them into the national team regularly enough and have that support from the game. We we're not tribal enough for our domestic league. Our game itself is not tribal enough within Australia. It's tribal globally. But it's not enough domestically. Gentlemen, you've whet the appetite for a fascinating future discussion. I know I've kept you well over an hour. So thank you for your answers. Great insights and something perhaps we can tap into at a later date. And when it comes to talking about all the various levels, John, you might appreciate that I went from commentating some of your Western United games during A-League season. Lucky enough to get my Socceroos debut on the Jordan game for Channel 10. But... Last weekend, I was doing Rockdale versus Marconi, and this weekend, I'll be doing Sydney Uni's women against the Northern Tigers. So maybe it's a question of people's consumption habits. Instead of looking for division, look for unity, because I don't know, maybe I'm proof that you can move between all the levels relatively seamlessly. But you raise, gentlemen, you raise some excellent points. Last word then, the floor is yours. Your final thoughts on what we've experienced this morning. Uh, Take it home, John Aloisi, Mark Schwartzer. Anything left that you want to get off your chest before we call it a morning? Oh, I don't know if there's anything left. I think we've, <laughs> we've touched on a few different subjects there. The the unity is a big one, and I like that you're doing uh, the the Sydney uh, women's uni side. That, that's that's a that's a top one. Uh, but look, everyone should be excited. I'm overexcited because at least I've got someone to follow the World Cup. Coming from Italian background, <laughs> I, I had no one there. So it was, uh, it was brilliant that Australia are there. I'm, I'm hoping that um, 
you know, this is going to create a whirlwind of, of not only support, but, you know, media coverage, which it will, we know it will, but uh, that we can actually uh, help the game develop even more and, and progress. And because we, it is the world game and, and it should be the number one game in Australia. And then uh, we keep on hurting ourselves but uh, it's five in a row that that not many nations can say they've qualified for five in a row we've done that um and now on to the world cup can't wait imagine if we were unified we've qualified for five world cups in a row imagine what we could accomplish if the sport within a country was unified i mean it's 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 i think the 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 possibilities are endless and and that's the thing i think that hurts us the most certainly I feel sad about, I feel disappointed about because, you know, we we live and breathe and we've had amazing opportunities to play at some incredible levels, you and I, Johnny, and we know what it's like when you've got a unified code, when you've got people who are tribal about their own sport, who are passionate about their game on on enormous levels and what sort of atmosphere it creates and what, what men, momentum it creates. What it's like... In, in this country, in England, watching on a World Cup day when England are playing, the country basically comes to a standstill. You know, and, and we, we and that, that's not just here. That's just my experience right here. When I go to Spain, when I've watched World Cups, uh, watched the final 2010 World Cup final in Spain, how a little village that I was at went bananas. You know, it, it's just something that you, you, you kind of wish that we could do as well. And we could get back to, well, we can hopefully almost get back to that unity that we showed for a glimpse there in 2006 when we qualified after 32 years. And hopefully we can kind of build well, that. There will again. be, there will be, because it's summer. So people will be out and about watching games, uh, getting excited about the games. Uh, and, and and I think that it will unify. And I'm not talking about the the federations because that's another subject altogether. I think it will unify, you know, the, the actual nation because, you know, the, we're the only sport that's being played in, in every state uh, of Australia. So all over Australia, we've got uh, people playing and, uh, and people will be excited about this. People will be excited about Australia at a World Cup. You know, it's it, it sort of, uh, it upset me a little bit that Peru had a national day off to watch their team try and qualify for the World Cup. I don't think there would have been many Australians waking up at four in the morning unless you're a diehard, uh, you know, Socceroo supporter. So we, we need that. We need the, the, the whole nation to stop and watch the, the Socceroos at the World Cup. And I know that we'll get it with the Matildas here uh, in 2023. So it, it's a good time to be part of the game. And, and, and you know, let's, let's hope that it helps the game. And let's hope it unifies everyone. Yep. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your insights and your instant reactions to qualifying for the World Cup and the Peruvian shaman up on the mountains who did their spells. They'll be thinking about Andrew Redmayne's beard and wiggle dance for <laughs> years to come. So, All 13 of them, right? Yeah, well, unlucky 13 perhaps uh, for Peru. But for Australia, it is celebration. And we hope you've enjoyed this chat on the Gegen pod. Certainly hoping to be back for a few more episodes before the start of the Premier League season. But in the meantime, don't forget the UEFA Nations League rolls on. Optus Sport is also the home of UEFA Women's Euro, which starts in July. And you can catch that all exclusively on Optus Sport. On behalf of John Aloisi and Mark Schwarzer, my name is Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for your company. 